Well, we'll come to a time now where we're going to look at a passage of the Bible. We're going to talk about what it means, why this matters at all, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to Acts 16, and beginning at verse 16. If you're using a Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 784. Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 16. And when you found that, would you stand with me and we'll read our passage together. Continuing in our series through the book of Acts, Pioneer Church, we'll see what happens today in the life of these witnesses for Jesus. Luke writes this, Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled, the word in the Greek there is, is irritated, uh, uh, disturbed, that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. Now, when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. As Romans, you were allowed to practice other religions, but nothing that would see Caesar as anything less than the Supreme Lord. The crowd joined in the attack, verse 22, against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in an inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God, And the other prisoners were listening to them. Yeah. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake that shook the foundations of the prison. And the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your, whole, your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, and he set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. I guess they thought, you know what, we've given them a beating, they had a night in jail, now get out of here. You've learned your lesson. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas are to be released, now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, no, 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 no. They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. Now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come and themselves and escort us out. 
The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, it was unlawful, you see, to uh, flog a Roman citizen or to imprison them without a trial. When they heard they were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them, and then they left. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just commit this time together asking God to speak to us now through his word. Living God, we come now to your word asking you to reveal yourself to us, to show us what it is that you want us to see today and how it is you want to change us by this word. We believe this word is powerful. It is living and active because it is inspired by your spirit. And you've told us that when you send out your word, it doesn't return void to you. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. And whatever purpose that is in each one of us this morning, I'm asking God, accomplish it by the power of your spirit. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Now, I'm sure that uh, none of you who are married or in a relationship of any kind have this problem in your own lives. Of course not. But communication. Communication, which I think we'd all agree is probably a pretty important thing in any healthy relationship, that continues to be an area of growth in my marriage. Uh, I don't know about you. Um, whether that's tone of voice, way you say things, or maybe it's the amazing ability that my wife and I have to hear a very simple question from somebody and interpret it, hear it with the most insulting, angry, uh, uh, horrible intent possible. Like my wife will ask me a simple question, hey, can I help you out with that, babe? And I'll hear that as, hey, since you're so weak and unmanly, can I help you with that, peewee? Or, you know, hey, uh, should I send you a text to remind you about that? Gets heard as, since you're such an incapable moron, should I hold your hand through this so that it actually gets done for once? I don't know why we do that. I'm not sure why. All I can say is very clearly, God's not done with us yet. There's more work to be done. Another area, other times communication, difficulties arise, and maybe you can relate to this, is because we apply a different definition to a word than was intended by the person speaking or texting or writing, whatever it is. We apply a different definition. The easiest place to see this is in a word like fine. <laughs> now, at a certain age, every man comes to know that that word is a bit of a minefield when it's encountered because you don't know which meaning it has. Now, I'm a pretty direct person in my communication. If I ask my daughter in the morning, I text my wife, how you doing? They say, fine. I'm going to be like, great, you're good. Let's, let's move on. But of course, it's not that simple. It's not that simple because context, uh, a body language, tone, all those things can take a word that means good and make it totally not good just by those simple pieces. And it's very hard for us, pray for us as men as we try to work this out. Whether you're a man or a woman here today, I think we all struggle in that particular area of communication because a lot of times we'll take a word and apply the meaning we want it to have. Why? Because it's the meaning that serves our needs the best. I'm busy. I don't have time to deal with a big crisis. So you say, fine, I'm going to just say, well, she probably means good and, and go on just because I'm just applying the meaning I want it to have. 
And I think we do this in all kinds of areas in our life. What I want to suggest is that we even do this when we read the Bible. When you encounter words like saved, rescued, immediately when you hear that, probably not a person in here doesn't think of somebody being pulled out of a burning building or or a car wreck or or some situation of danger or difficulty being pulled out. But if we try to apply that one definition, that one understanding of rescue to every single occurrence in the Bible, we're going to find it pretty difficult to interpret a lot of passages. It's going to not work out. For instance, like 2 Timothy 3.11. Here Paul is recounting uh, his really harrowing experiences in a lot of the cities that we've been looking at through the book of Acts. Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, uh, places where he's received death threats, uh, persecutions of all kinds. One place is even stoned, remember, left for dead outside the city. And yet he still, when he recounts his remembrance of all these hardships, he still says, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Huh? The Lord rescued you from all of them, really? Yeah, oh, well, okay. I guess if, if not dying means being rescued, yeah, okay, you were, you're rescued, sure. But come on. We're going to interpret uh, when he hears about a death threat in Iconium and gets out of there ahead of time. That's being rescued. We see that as being rescued. We're going to have a hard time understanding you being stoned and then thrown outside the city left for dead as also being rescued. But you see already what that reveals to us is a breakdown in our communication. Breakdown in our communication with Paul, with God's word, because we're trying to apply one definition of rescued to what Paul says there, when it's very clear he's got a different, or at least a broader definition of what he's talking about. Why do we do that? Well, I think it's because we want rescued to always mean rescued from, rescued out of some situation, whatever it is. The problem with that is throughout the Bible, although there are times when rescued means that, many times rescued doesn't mean out of trials, it means through them. And I think the reason we do that is probably even unconsciously is because when we're praying for rescue for something ourselves, asking God, rescue me out of it, I've received a, a cancer diagnosis, I've got money hardships, I've got a, a difficulty in my marriage, my kids are blowing up their lives with bad decisions, whatever it is, what we're saying is, God, get me out of this. Rescue me. <laughs> saying, God, I want you to... Rescue me from these situations. I'm not asking you for strength or grace to make it through. Get me out of here. So in light of that, I'm praying what we're going to see in our passage today is going to help improve all of our communication with God and His Word a great deal because we're going to see that, first of all, we can't apply the same definition of rescue to every place we see it in the Bible. It doesn't always mean rescued out of. And secondly... What this passage does, it gives us some clues as to why God chooses to rescue us out of some hardships, but much more often chooses to rescue us through them. So I want to frame our discussion here in this passage by looking at it in three ways. I want to show you rescued from hardships, rescued through hardships, and then God's purpose in both. Rescued from and through hardships, God's purpose in both. So if you close your Bibles, would you open them again? To Acts 16, starting at verse 16, follow along with me as we look now at a witness to a jailer. So let's look first of all at rescued from hardships. 
Rescued from hardships. Now, this is the definition that everybody likes. This is the good one. Okay, this is the one that you see in every uh, TV drama series, uh, uh, Marvel films, whatever it is. Rescued out. You're rescued from the danger. And as I said, I think it's the definition we also tend to apply whenever we're praying and asking God for rescue in our own lives as well. What's really encouraging, let's just let you all off the hook right now. This is one of the definitions the Bible uses throughout for rescue, rescuing us out of difficulty, out of peril. The Bible does speak of rescue this way. We see that definition even in our own passage here this morning. Look at verses 16 through 18. Now to give us some context, in verse 16 there, when it talks about going to a place of prayer, Paul and Silas, they're going to a place of prayer. You need to know that's not a Jewish synagogue. That's the first thing we should say, okay? There is no Jewish synagogue in this Roman colony of Philippi. A place of prayer is this same place way outside the city, down by a river, that a couple of days ago, Paul and Silas had been ministering, having, they was having like a ladies' Bible study there. They meet this woman, Lydia, seller of fine purple cloth. She's basically like the uh, 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 Donna Karan, Vera Wang of the first century. And she gets saved. Her whole family gets saved. It's a beautiful scene, but it happens at this place of prayer way outside the city. And it's important to have those bearings when we see this place of prayer now because that's going to give us some clear indications about what this Roman colony feels about Jews and Judaism in particular. It's not part of the city. It's, it's something out there that we just tolerate. But as they're continuing to preach and teach out here at this place of prayer, all of a sudden this demon-possessed slave girl shows up, starts following Paul and his crew around everywhere, causing this huge disturbance, big scene, yelling at them as they go around. Look at verse 17. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us around, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days, it says. Now, we don't see this in our translation here, the New International Version, but some of your translations will say this slave girl had the spirit of divination. When it talks about he has this spirit by which she can predict the future, a spirit of divination. Now, in the Greek, it's actually pneuma puthos, which means a spirit of a python. Divination in biblical times uh, meant someone, it had included everything from clairvoyance, being able to predict the future, as well as uh, communicating with the souls of the dead, all kinds of different things like that, but every time done by the power of demonic forces. What we do see here is this slave girl, she's following Paul around, and all of these guys shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God, they're telling you the way to be saved, and when we first read that, we think, okay, why, why, why is that bad? Is, that's true, isn't that what they are? Remember, all through the New Testament, uh, the demons always recognized Jesus, they would say, I know who you are, you're the Holy One of God, so same thing here, that she's recognizing God in them and saying they're telling you the way to be saved. Isn't that good? Isn't this kind of like free press? She's calling them in, kind of like a popcorn and peanut salesman at a baseball game. Hey, come in, hear the way to be saved. The answer is no. Short answer, no. It's not a good thing. reason we know it's not good, first of all, is because Paul says it's not good. You see, he, he's rebuking, he's casting out that spirit. He's not thanking it for his help. Second thing to see is that the Most High God in this context, in Philippi, was not the God of the Bible. It was Zeus. That's who they referred to as the Most High God. And so Paul is, is not wanting it to be understood that way. He's not wanting people to get confused. 
This would be like a missionary working in an Islamic country and some demon-possessed person following you around saying, these people are servants of Allah. And immediately you're like, okay, well, I don't want them to make that connection because that's, it is God, but it's not the God you're talking about. Finally, Paul is he's, yeah, he's concerned with the distraction of her shouting everywhere they're preaching, but even more so, he doesn't want people to draw a connection between the gospel message and demon possession. I think that's a pretty important thing to not have people connect those two things. I'd be a little bit like having Kim Jong-un uh, publicly endorsing your uh, social justice rally. You just you don't want that kind of connection brought into what you're trying to do. And so in the same thing here, Paul is trying to guard the gospel message so that it's not discredited before he can even speak a word. In fact, this is the same reason you see later on Paul making such a fuss in verse uh, 37 there when he's released from prison. He's not just being a princess about it. What he's trying to do is guard the integrity of the gospel. And the church later on, as he leaves, he's trying to say it's not okay for the church now for you to just throw people in prison whenever you want. So he, by making a big deal about, no, you come and, and bring us out, that's what he's doing. He's guarding the message. So same thing here. That's the reason why this girl following them around, he's wanting to shut this down. So it's going on for days. It keeps happening. Finally, verse 18, Paul's finally had enough. And there he is, he and all his companions, they're rescued. They're rescued, saved out of this demonic attack by the power of Jesus as Paul exercises this spirit of divination in this slave girl. So they're rescued. I think it's important to say this girl, she's also rescued. Rescued from this evil spirit that's uh, attacking her and also She's rescued from slavery to these slave owners who have been uh, using her, making money off her. So I think this is clearly an example of rescue according to that first definition of the word. There's no epic battle going on. There's no kind of Linda Blair, uh, Ghostbusters thing going on. They just, he just, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. The Spirit leaves her. And as it relates to this first definition, the kind of, this is the kind of rescue that we're hoping for, isn't it? When we are praying for rescue from some difficulty, this is what we want to see happen. You're dealing with a hard situation. You try to work it out yourself. You can't. You pray to God. God, help me with this. Jesus shows up. Bam. Rescues you out. Done. Easy, right? That's, that's what we want. And I want to just, from this part of the passage here, I want to show you that's entirely possible. God does rescue us like this at times, and, and He has the power to do it. It's entirely within his power to perform. But what I wonder is, if as much as this is the kind of rescue we want, and God can rescue us like this, my question is, if there aren't times that we don't forego, we don't uh, uh, give up on the opportunity to be rescued like this, because we don't even bother to ask. We're so convinced, God, now he probably won't, probably not going to do it, actually, maybe he can't. Rescue me out of this, so we don't even bother asking. But do you realize how backward that is? That's literally like having a heart attack, a, a falling into a crevice sometime while you're snowshoeing, but then not calling an ambulance because you just assume, you know what, the ambulance is probably not going to get here in time. It's rush hour, Southwest Marine is still closed, probably not going to get here in time, so I'm not just going to bother even asking. You're giving up on rescue before you even ask. And I think the solution to that kind of thinking and to seeing this kind of rescue actually happen in our lives, which is entirely possible, is to return to an understanding of God and prayer to God 
like we saw the apostles doing back in Acts 4. Do you remember? The one they were praying to was the sovereign Lord. That's who they prayed to. Sometimes the Jesus we pray to, we don't ask for rescue like this because our Jesus is this little dashboard Jesus who we're pretty convinced can't help us. The God they prayed to was the sovereign Lord, the one in control of all things, the one who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them, they said. The one who laughs at the nations who rage and plot against him and holds them in derision. I'm convinced when you remind yourself of that God, that that's who he is, that's the God of the Bible, that's who you're praying to, he's the one you're asking for rescue. I think that ought to embolden and empower your prayers once again to to believe that God can truly rescue us like this. Because here's the thing, if Jesus is really who he said he was, and he's revealing himself all through Acts here, that he truly is who he said he was and he's who he promised to be, then that means he's the same Jesus we're praying to today who can accomplish these same miraculous rescues out of hardship, whatever they may be, whatever it is you're facing today. Difficulty, hardship, whatever he can, he's more than able to rescue us if only we'll ask. If only we'll trust that he is able and come to him saying, rescue me, help me. He can and will rescue us like this. He still is powerful to save against anything that may come against us. That's rescued from hardships. That's what it can look like. Next, I want us to look at rescued through hardships. Rescued through hardships. And we need to look at this because although there are notable examples throughout the Bible of being rescued from hardships, like what we just saw, there are by far, sorry, way more examples of being rescued through them. And we're going to talk in our last point about some reasons for that. But at this moment, what I want to do is spend some time looking at a demonstration of what being rescued through hardships looks like as Paul and Silas continue to try to be witnesses here in this town of Philippi. If you look at verses uh, 19 through 21, here's where we see a very uh, interesting example again of people with different definitions of words. Because although Paul and this slave girl see what just happened as being rescued from a demonic spirit, the slave owners see what Paul did as rescuing them from receiving a paycheck anymore. So they're not too happy about that. And they drag Paul and Silas before these magistrates in the marketplace. And when they do that, if you look at their accusation there in verse 20, you see right away, very clearly, these anti-Semitic views of this town that I referred to earlier there in that place of prayer. Look at the very first words out of their mouth, verse 20. These men are Jews. That's how they start. They're trying to rile up the anti-Semitic views of the crowd, and then say they're causing a disturbance. Now, a disturbance could cause them to lose their status. If there's riots in the city, they could lose their status as a Roman colony. So, by arousing both the protective and the nationalistic sentiments of the city, we see verse 22 through 24, Paul and Silas become the victims of really court-sanctioned mob violence as they are stripped and severely flogged before this crowd. In this time period, these magistrates, these people who were put in charge of these Roman colonies, they would carry around with them a bundle of rods. They would carry it around with them. You'll see this in pictures and drawings uh, from this time period. And what that does is that symbolized their power and authority to rule and carry out justice. So that's what they used 
in this severe flogging. What we see here is Paul and Silas receiving a severe caning. That's what's going on here, which means they would have been stripped, beaten, left, bloody, bruised, likely with fractured ribs and bones. And then, after this brutal public flogging, they're handed over to this jailer who would have been probably an ex-Roman military. That's who usually got these jobs. Handed over to this guy, when told to guard them carefully, he goes well above and beyond the call of duty, throws them into the deepest, darkest inner cell of the prison, and fastens their feet in the stocks. Now, one commentary is very helpful in uh, giving us an accurate historical picture of all this, pointing out stocks, putting people's feet and hands in stocks was a form of torture. It was a form of torture. Okay, it wasn't these fun wooden handcuffs that you put your head in and get a selfie at some museum. They were designed both to, yes, secure prisoners, but make their stay as uncomfortable as possible while they were being held there. That's one of the things that makes this passage so striking to read because in really ten, a 10-verse ten section of this passage, you go from Paul and Silas being rescued from a demonic attack to ostensibly not being rescued at all as they undergo this horrific, humiliating treatment. And yet what we also see now is a very interesting side-by-side comparison of what being rescued from hardship and through hardship can look like all in one passage, even though, here's what I want to point out, in both circumstances, Paul and Silas are being faithful. They're doing what Jesus wants, and in both circumstances, they receive this treatment, sometimes rescued out of, sometimes through but it's not because they're not being faithful in following Jesus. We know that Paul and Silas are being rescued through this trial long before they're ever rescued physically out of the jail because of what we read in verse 25. Look with me there. At the end of this horrific day of corporal punishment at the hands of this angry mob and then this overzealous jailer, we read this, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners We're listening to them, and you read that, and you think, how in the world could they do that? How could they be singing hymns and praying to God after suffering like that? And the answer is because in this circumstance, they're not being rescued out from this hardship. They're being rescued through it. And I don't know what hardships all of you are facing this morning right now. I know some of them because I know a lot of you, and... Many of you have been brave and bold enough to share those things with me so we can pray about it. But let's be honest, we're also pretty skilled at, at cleaning up before we come to church on a Sunday morning, and so we might not know. I have no doubt that even in this room right now, there are people suffering unbelievable hardships and things in their lives which you don't even see, in which they see no hope of escape when or when that rescue will ever come. Wherever you're at this morning, I pray that you will know or that you are knowing right now the sustaining grace and power that God grants his children as he rescues them through hardships, just like we see Paul and Silas knowing here. How can we know it? How can you experience it? Well, one way is what we've already talked about a few times now. What Paul mentioned a few times ago in Acts 14 Having an expectation, first of all, an expectation that suffering and hardship are a part of the Christian life. To not be surprised when these things come. That's the first way we can know rescue through. Remember Paul's 
loving a heads up to the congregation was we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And no, not because God's abandoned you, but because Christianity was never meant to be an escape from the realities and suffering of living in a world still broken by sin. It was meant to be a transforming, sustaining hope in the midst of it. But the other way to know and experience the sustaining grace as God rescues you through hardships is to follow the example that we see Paul and Silas giving us here in this passage. Because here's the thing. We look at Paul and Silas praying, singing hymns to God, and we think of that as the result of their being rescued through hardship. And it's amazing to us. We think that's incredible, and it is. But what I'd like to suggest to you is that maybe, perhaps, just maybe, their singing and their praying to God was not the result of their being rescued through hardship. It was the means of attaining it. What do I mean by that? Consider what Paul wrote to this very church that he planted here in Philippi years later. Philippians 4, verse 4 through 7. Let's listen to what he wrote to them. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition. There it is. There's their pattern. With prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, with praise, present your request to God, and then, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you see it? Praying. Singing hymns to God in the bowels of this prison, feet in the stocks, was the means by which Paul and Silas reached out to the God who was with them and found the rescue through these hardships. It wasn't the result. They weren't singing because they had been rescued. They were singing in order to be rescued through. That's how they found that sustaining grace in the midst of the hardship. As they turned their gaze not inward on their circumstances, but upward, as they fixed their eyes, as the author of Hebrews tells us, not on themselves, but on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. That's how they were rescued through hardships. And I believe it can be just the same for you and I today. Whatever hardship we are facing or will face, I swear to you, in some of the deepest and most darkest dungeons in my own life, when I was enabled by, enabled by God's grace to take my eyes off the hurtful thing in front of me, the pain, the anger, whatever circumstances were happening, to lift my eyes back up to Jesus, sometimes with no prayer at all on my lips, just to lifting my eyes to Him. I've been able to, I've experienced myself some of the most tender, most loving embrace of our Father, and even though none of my the circumstances didn't change at all, my experience of them became radically altered as I then was able to access that rescuing through those hardships, turning with praise, with singing in the midst of the hardship. And as you turn your prayers and praises to Jesus in the midst of your hardships, I believe you can know that same rescue yourself. As the third century Christian historian Tertullian wrote of this scene, he was commenting on this very passage and he said, the legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. 
So that's the amazing contrast that Luke offers us here, both of being rescued through hardships and from them. Right in this very same passage, but the question we still haven't considered is, why? Why does God allow us to go through these hardships at all? And more to the point I made earlier, although he's able to rescue us out of these hardships, why is it that God's plans so much more often seem to be to rescue us through them? Well, listen, this side of heaven, we need to recognize that there's always going to be mystery to God's ways of operating. We're not given all the answers. But I think this passage here gives us biblical warrant to suggest some ideas anyway, as we look finally at God's purpose in both. God's purpose in both rescuing us from hardships and through them. Verse 25 left us with Paul and Silas singing in the stocks. The very next verse shows us the kind of rescue from hardships that God was able to offer at any point earlier, but he chose not to. As he sends this violent earthquake that just blows the doors off every cell in the jail. I love what my uh, brother Bruce Milne had to say in his commentary on this passage as it relates to the way the Spirit, we've seen him working in the apostles all through this passage, all through Acts actually. He says this, in a sense, the surprise would have been if there had been no earthquake. We're seeing God just come through always in these amazing ways. It would have been crazy if he hadn't delivered them in some amazing way like this. But as we read on, it's only now. It's only now that Paul and Silas and and we begin to see something of God's purposes in choosing to rescue them through this hardship and not immediately from it. For now, as Paul extends mercy, extends grace to this captor, his torturer, preserves his life where he would have lost it, for he thinks losing these prisoners that were under his charge, we see God's kingdom purposes. Ah, okay. His kingdom purposes begin to come to fruition now as this jailer is saved and his whole family is saved. We see God's reasoning behind rescuing them through and not from right away. Verse 27, 28, look there with me. We see uh, uh, Paul rescues the jailer from taking his own life, says, don't harm yourself, we're all still here. To, for a prisoner to lose any of the prisoners that were under his charge meant that he would receive capital punishment. And so he's uh, a soldier of honor. He wants to take his own life rather than have it taken. Paul stops him. He says, no, don't harm yourself. We're all still here. Then in verse 29, 30, we read this. The jailer called for lights. Remember, they were in the deepest inner cell of the prison. Rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out, asked them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now this regards to what we, uh, this point we made a few times now going through this passage about how secular people hear the call to come to Jesus. Here we're seeing it again. This jailer, although he's, he's humbled, he's willing to do whatever it takes, he still hears the call to come to Jesus as the call to do something. What do I have to do now? What, what rules do I have to start doing now so that God will love me and save me. He still hears it as something he has to do, which gives Paul now the amazing opportunity to present him with gospel freedom. Verse 31, beginning there, he says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's it. Simply, he's just saying you don't have to do anything. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no card to sign, no place to give your money. It's been done for you already. All you need to do is believe and you will be saved. And he does it. He does believe. 
He and his whole family come to believe the gospel, and they're saved, they're baptized. And then in this beautiful display of a gospel community that's now being created, he offers, brings them into his home, feeds them a meal. Verse 33, you see, as the early church father Christosom wrote, now the man whose sins have just been washed now washes the wounds of Paul and Silas. Beautiful display of gospel community that's now been formed. And no, it's not, it's not everything. We're not given the whole answer, but I think this story alone gives us some really helpful insight as to why God might rescue us from some hardships. He might rescue us out of them, but more often than not, tends to rescue us through them. First thing we see is one of the reasons he does that is because he wants to strengthen and grow our faith. I mean, we see God rescues Paul and Silas through this hardship in order to grow their faith and trust in him as they see God's ability to rescue them once again as they put their faith in him, as they keep their eyes fixed on him. I believe that's one of the same reasons God brings us through hardships as well, to grow us, to strengthen us in the midst of these things. But the bigger answer, and this might be hard for us to hear, but the bigger answer, and you see it all through chapter 16, is that God has a plan. He's got a purpose that he's accomplishing in the world. And in this instance, his plan is to expand his kingdom and grow his church in this town of Philippi. He wants to save Lydia. He wants to save uh, that slave girl. He wants to save the jailer and his whole family. That's what he's doing. And as his witnesses are willing to faithfully follow where he leads them, as they're willing to go where he calls them, give, give whatever cost is involved in following him, they get the amazing privilege of coming along for the ride. Remember we talked about that last Sunday. You're, you're yoked in now with Jesus, so where he goes, you come with him, which means sometimes you're going to go through some hard things. But listen, what that means is that we set ourselves up for regular crushing disappointments. Whenever we get this wrong, we believe that the Christian life, we come in with an expectation that we're going to present our life plan our purposes before God and nicely written stationery and ask Him to just sign off on that. You're going to be disappointed every time when you do that. We see God as a magic genie who's going to help us fulfill our requests. He's going to just help us accomplish our own purposes in life. I don't know why we do that. I don't know where we get that from this book that the purpose of God in our lives is to help us fulfill our own purposes. That's not what this is about. And this passage, one of the blessings of it, the hard blessings of it is to show us again, that's not how God works. That's not how he designed it to work. He's going to accomplish his purposes in the world, and he's going to invite us along to be a part of them. But at no point is he going to stop to consult us and say, hey, what, what do you think I should do next? It's his purposes. As, as someone has said so well, God is not part of the story of our lives. He's not a part of your story. We are all bit players in the story that he's writing. He's accomplishing his purposes, and he just invites us in to be a part of it. And you're going to be confused and discouraged every time when we confuse those things, and we think God's here to help us fulfill our purposes. He isn't. Now, many times our purposes and our dreams and hopes will be fulfilled because they're in line with what God already wants to do. But he makes no promise of Present your list to me and I'll check it off for you. So as we close this morning, I want us to just take a few minutes together, just in the quietness, safety of this place, to just do a bit of work, to consider some hard questions, 
And do it just here in this moment because life takes over. The minute the service ends, we head off to the next thing and we don't stop and do it later on. So I'm just going to say, let's take some time right this moment and consider two questions. First of all, ask yourself, where have I or where am I right now doubting God's faithfulness? Where have I even blamed him for unfaithfulness because he's not rescuing me out of some situation that I've asked him to rescue me from, but he's rescuing me through? Where are you doubting God's faithfulness right now because he's not using your definition of rescue? As we said last Sunday, you don't put God in your debt. And our obedience to him does not earn any of us, guarantee us some kind of get-out-of-jail-free card. Second question, if you have something in your mind right now, ask yourself this question now. Will you endure that hardship? Will you trust God? Will you trust his plan and endure that hardship, whatever he's calling you to right now, trusting that even if he doesn't rescue you from it, that he is accomplishing some perfect purpose and plan in you and in this world through it. Will you trust him for that? I pray you've seen from what we looked at this morning how a deepened, broadened, truly biblical definition of that word rescue, it can dramatically improve your communication with God and his word. You read differently when you understand a broader definition of rescue. But I pray it's also helped expand your understanding of the purposes of God in our life so that you can continue to trust Him and reach out to Him even when He chooses to take you through some hardship and not rescue you out of it. We'll never do that without His help. So let's pray right now. Ask Him for that rescue. Trusting Him to hear it and accomplish it as He chooses. I'll ask at this time as well if those of you helping me serve communion, if you'd come forward. Living God, we have got you wrong a lot of times. We've been confused when it comes to our understanding of rescue. And we've doubted you. I know I have. Because I'm reaching out to you, I'm coming to you for a certain kind of rescue and you're not giving it. God, would you give each one of us right now faith? Would you give us help? Help us to trust you. Help us to praise you and pray to you and reach out to you even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of our hardship, trusting that if you choose to rescue us through that hardship, you have a purpose. Doesn't mean we're always going to get to see it, but God, help us to trust in who you've revealed yourself to be, a loving Father. And you've demonstrated that most supremely by giving your son. You've showed us you are passionately committed to our rescue. When we consider that, we can know that our suffering at this time is not your punishment. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.